Hello and welcome back to Podcast from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. As it gets colder where I am in the Cape, I watch with envy as people jet off to warm and sunnier places in the north. I even felt a little envy for journalist colleagues stuck on that SAA Airbus in Warsaw the other day as they tried to follow the African peace mission to Russia and Ukraine. At least when they finally disembarked for a while, they got to go and sit uh, in warm or outside warm European coffee shops on cobbled warm streets, bars, and briefly forget about the weather. The main act in that saga, or one of the main acts, President Saul Ramaphosa, has been flying around like crazy. First it was Warsaw, then St. Petersburg, and hardly had he returned than he seemed to be off to France for a global dialogue on finance, and then the next time I saw him he was delivering the final remarks at an ANC provincial elective conference in Cape Town. That's some serious travelling, by any standards, and he does it in the same old presidential jet in Kwasi um, that Thabo Mbeki first ordered more than 20 years ago. We all remember how Jacob Zuma felt he needed a bigger one, and that the Boeing business jet was at 10 years old, too old and too dangerous. Zuma was such a baby about flying, he had a chase plane follow him when he took Nkwasi to the UN in New York in 2012. Back then the Air Force lied about the chase plane, saying it had only gone as far as the Canary Islands, but it reckoned without the huge plane-spotting population of the US, which easily tracked both Zuma and his chase plane into airports at New York. Zuma wanted to replace it with something more presidential, i.e. bigger. Inquasi is just a Boeing 737 after all. He wanted, if memory serves me right, a 757. Fortunately, he was run out of office before he could uh, get his hands on one. But even though I'm sure that after 20 years, uh, Inquasi is showing some wear and tear, Ramaphosa faithfully uses it. And again, as far as I know, he doesn't require a shadow. I also presume Inquasi has a decent bed because, say what you like, Ramaphosa is looking a little perky lately. He must get some sleep on those flights. Two things over the weekend caught my eye. First, in France, where he was amongst friends, um, not difficult ones, including the returned Brazilian President Lula da Silva and one of his co-travelers on the Ukraine mission, the deeply impressive new Zambian President, Hakeinde Hichilema. One of the flashes I saw on TV was a Ramaphosa promising uh, De Silva that a new BRICS currency would be on the agenda at the BRICS summit this coming August, month after next, in Johannesburg. It's become a bit of a thing, this talk of toppling the dollar. And of course, no self-respecting revolutionary. Now, how many dollars he or she may have stashed away in a foreign bank account could be expected to resist joining in. Somehow, Arrival to the dollar would make life easier for developing countries. No one ever says quite how, actually. Um, but there's an anti-Americanism in the very prospect that gets people like Ramaphosa and his foreign minister, Naledi Pandor, quite excited. This is Pandor, I'm going to quote. Now we, this is BRICS, have the massive economies of China, India, and I think Brazil, as if she were unsure, which is now on the march. This is her about a month ago. We need to look at how we draw on the new strengths in the global community to build a new form of idea alignment, whatever that is, a new form of values alignment. 
And that is really the opportunity. If we don't seize the moment now, we would have lost the opportunity as the South to really have influence in emerging global ideas. Ramaphosa has promised to put uh, the US dollar's dominance at the top of the Johannesburg agenda, and in theory, creating competition for the dollar should be no bad thing. All competition is good, but the protagonists, even if it is slightly cynical, uh, people in favor of toppling the dollar, and need, needless to say they're talking about the Chinese currency, the renminbi, they have a small problem. Ramaphosa could right now instruct South African SOEs to do their business in Remnimbi, but the Chinese closely manage their currency to ensure they achieve certain secondary goals. For start, they keep it competitive with the dollar, so it's easier for them to export to the US and harder for the Americans to export it to them. But it's unpredictable, because you don't know what they're going to do from one minute to the next. The Americans, in turn, largely leave the dollar to the market. Yes, they raise and lower interest rates, but those decisions are decentralized and beyond much political control. Our Reserve Bank has the same freedom, and it's a very valuable thing. To get a real dollar alternative, you'd have to do what the Europeans did and create a whole new currency, in their case the euro. That required EU members to surrender their currencies, the Deutschmark, the Franc, the Peseta, the Drachma, the Lira. And that wasn't easy, that hasn't been easy for poorer members in the south of the EU, or for the better run and richer members and treasuries in the north. The euro trades currently at around 1.09 to the dollar, almost parity. If you put together one unit each of the BRICS members' currencies, i.e. one rand, one Brazilian real, one Russian ruble, one renminbi, one Indian rupee, they would be less than 20 US cents. That doesn't mean it can't be done. Jim O'Neill, the former Goldman Sachs chief economist who first named the BRIC countries, that's before South Africa joined, thinks it's a good idea. The US dollar pays far too dominant a role in global finance, he wrote in a paper back in March. Whenever the Federal Reserve has embarked on periods of monetary tightening or the opposite loosening, the consequences on the value of the dollar and the knock-on effects have been dramatic. Indeed, don't we know? We've seen just what high interest rates and hence the strong dollar have done to the cost of living in South Africa. Although it's not so, not all that clear what a new how a new currency would change that. Um, we're way too small a market to import substitute our way or localize our way out of trouble. And imagine you can turn the rest of Africa into a form of your internal market is just plain dumb. Jim O'Neill agrees, but he thinks it was also dumb to include South Africa as a BRICS member, introducing a geopolitical element into what was at the time a piece of purely economic logic. What the BRIC countries had before South Africa joined were large populations, massive internal markets, and big land masses. And he quotes in his, in his article, if the main goal of BRICS is, as a group is symbolism, which it often seems to be, then attracting other equally large population emerging countries is understandable. But if there has to be a primary economic purpose to the grouping, then the criterion would need to change. He, I'm quoting from a Bloomberg story now, which has him saying that new members 
should have a population of at least 100 million and would include countries like Vietnam, Indonesia, Bangladesh, Turkey. And if the Saudis and Iran were to join, just imagine how difficult it would be to manage something. Particularly if you were trying to join a single currency, it actually becomes just impossible. You've got to align your economies and your expectations and, yes, your values. The thing about the dollar is that the American system is transparent. Governments are regularly replaced and the Fed gives plenty of warning about its thinking. If you can't manage the dollar, how on earth are you going to do business with a currency under the control, fundamentally, of the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party? South Africa is a bit player in all of this, but it isn't a bad thing to have a seat at the table. It expands you, increases you somehow. Enver Hoxha, the former leader of Albania, is said once to have remarked in an effort to magnify his own position on some issue that the Chinese agreed with, that, quote, between them, Albania and China represent a quarter of the world's population. It sort of applies to our way of thinking about being a member of BRICS. Expect lots of ringing declarations and promises from the BRICS summit. I doubt, given the events of the past few days, that Vladimir Putin, the Russian leader, will attend, and this will relieve, will relieve Ramaphosa of any discomfort. But the world won't change much. Watch the economic cycle. It hasn't stopped. At some stage, South Africa, equities, property, whatever, will become just ridiculously cheap. And the folks with dollars will come and buy, and there'll be a boom, and we'll have forgotten about all this. In much the same way, trust markets to always give you the best information. The oil price is stable. That means no one has it by the throat. Another sign of a market at work, a dramatic increase in rooftop solar installed in the past six months has unquestionably eased the demand, eased the demand burden on ESCOM and is lifting the need to load shed. You can feel it. The second thing Ramaphosa said that amused and interested me was to proclaim with shock when asked about the possibility of losing the election next year, that it was just a silly proposition and wasn't going to happen. The ANC would retain its national majority. You have to say it may be right, he may be right. The opposition is really nowhere, and DA leader John Steenhuisen's moonshot pact, our last April, has, it seems to me anyway, lost its impetus. The ANC may well lose some provinces, KwaZulu, Gauteng, perhaps. But even there, you can't be certain. But where the ANC is weak nationally may be in its actual leadership. South Africans don't love Cyril anymore, and neither do they think much, I doubt, of his deputy Paul Mashatila. If there were a way to turn the election into a race for the presidency, rather than pitting parties against each other, in other words, between the ANC candidates and the rest of the South African body politic, things could get really interesting. Traditionally, Parliament elects an elect, uh, president after an election. If the ANC couldn't manage 50% of the vote, how, would the, how well could the rest of Parliament do? Is there a candidate they could all support who would be free then to form a government? I agree with the Freedom Front Plus's Peter Kronewald that the person simply has to be black. He chooses IFP leader Velenkorsi Klavisa. I'd also look at I'd look at people like Songhez or Zibi, a deeply impressive, intelligent political animal. 
his rise in Zanzi has yet to contest an election, but to unseat the ANC, the opposition only needs two things. Enough money to get the opposition vote out on the day, and just one person, the right person, to get elected. And then we have a completely new future. Well, that's me done for the week. Can't wait to be back to do this again. You all take care, and remember... This is on the Financial Mail digital platform and on the Apple and Spotify podcast platforms as well. Adios.